Uh, good evening from uh, Dubai. Good afternoon, Europe, and good morning, America. Uh, happy to have you back for another webinar. Uh, we have a very important topic that we'll be discussing today, which is climate solutions in Web3. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Sharad Agarwal. I'm the Chief Metaverse Officer of Cybergear, which is a digital agency based in Dubai. And I'm also the co-founder of OnlyWebinars.com. Uh, so let's get started with our webinar. We have three amazing panelists. Uh, we have Erin Grover, we have Josh Neuer, we have Dr. Jane Thomason, and happy to inform our audience that Erin and Josh are coming in live uh, from COP27 in Egypt, and they will be reporting to us in terms of all the action that's happening there. And of course, I'll be coming to Jane very soon as well. So let's get started. And Erin, uh, can you please introduce yourself to our audience? Yes, um, thank you for having me. It's a very exciting day to be coming from Egypt. Um, I am a blockchain expert. Uh, I'm a specialist in international development. I spent 10 years working in places like Afghanistan, Nepal, East Timor, and Cambodia uh, with the UN, USAID, and, and others. Um, and then I fell into blockchain and uh, crypto asset management about uh, six years ago. Uh, I was a founder of a fund uh, in the crypto space. And then I switched into uh, placement of investors um, into some of the best um, funds that have very high standards, um, the same as traditional funds. Um, so <clears throat> I wanted to do more than just helping people to make money. And I want to help people to make money and to make impact. So over the past couple of years, I've been really focused on supply chain with blockchain integration. I have been working with several uh, supply chain projects for blockchain over uh, the past few years between Africa and India. And about a year ago, I started to think about carbon and what that looks like in blockchain and farmers. And now my number one focus is, is exactly that, <laughs> is supporting farmers um, through reseed uh, to monetize their, their carbon credits. Uh, for the global marketplace. So that is my nutshell. And uh, I guess we'll hand it over to Josh, my partner over here. Go ahead, Josh. Well, hi, everybody. Uh, Shrad, thank you so much for uh, inviting me to join us, a joint job. And it's great to be with Aaron and Jane, uh, and of course, our audience. Uh, it's such an honor to be here uh, at the COP27. There's so much going on here. It feels like, you know, the entire world's focus right now is uh, with waiting with bated breath to see what happens uh, in the negotiations. And uh, I have been uh, lucky enough to be uh, a delegate and uh, in this in the negotiation space and uh, am hearing a lot of uh, really cool um, conversations happening uh, around substance uh, as opposed to just flash, uh, as opposed to just promises uh, that would help improve people's livelihoods as we are addressing the climate uh, crisis. And I think that's a really important thing. Uh, just as a quick background, I have decades of experience in the climate uh, climate fights, if you will. 
uh, in the early, early uh, 1990s, I uh, helped uh, bring the environments. I basically use emerging technology, uh, the best of emerging technology to try to help social environmental issues that uh, I care about. And climate has been at the forefront of that for, as I said, decades. Um, I helped uh, basically take the environmental movement online in the early 1990s uh, by uh, helping over 3,000 organizations get their first websites and email addresses and things like that through a foundation I started called EnviroLink. And I've been doing that work uh, in the for-profit sector uh, ever since. Uh, I had a company called Green Marketplace, which took the natural products industry online in 1996. I was one of the first e-commerce sites uh, period online. And then uh, to bring the natural products industry and, and to allow people to have access to data information that allowed them to make better decisions about what they were buying. And then I sold that company to a publicly traded company. And now I, uh, I, I started another company called Riza uh, that was big data for change, uh, worked on very large scale global projects. And that's how I directly came in contact with my first carbon project. I, uh, with my partner, um, one of my business partners at Reseed Vasco van Dusmalen uh, in Brazil, we helped take the first red certified carbon credits online. Uh, this is the first indigenous tribe uh, to uh, actually take advantage of the carbon credit markets. And we learned a lot about what does and doesn't work in the market. Um, and once again, uh, as I keep hearing here at COP, as I see uh, after multiple generations of different layers of technology, emerging tech, um, there's a whole lot of flash, a whole lot of, uh, you know, people are all excited about new things and jump after them. Uh, I try to keep an eye on the things that actually uh, might have a through line that are going to get us to the to where we need to go uh, in terms of the impact and change in the world. So I'm really excited to be working on Reseed. I'm sure we'll talk about it more, but uh, we're our goal is to help a billion farmers globally um, basically be compensated for the ecosystem services works that they're already doing uh, and that they will do in the future by creating a new type of carbon credit uh, that is meant to actually open up the market of carbon credits for farmers. Because right now, farmers do not have access to the carbon markets at all. Uh, less than 0.03% of carbon credits sold on the marketplace today um, are sourced from any form of agriculture, and usually it's industrial agriculture. So we're here to change that. We have a model to do it, uh, and uh, we're well underway. So I'm sure we'll talk more, and I'll be happy to hand it off to Jane. Sorry, Jane, I probably spoke too long. <laughs> Yeah, hello everyone. Really good to see you. And I wish I was there in COP with you. But never mind. Here I am. I, I made it. Um, so I've been, I came at this from blockchain for sustainability. I got involved in blockchain in 2016. And I was uh, really powerfully moved by it because I could see its application for social utility and for social transformation. And uh, back in 2017, I was actually approached by Alastair Mark, who wrote a book called um, Blockchain, Climate Finance and Green Energy or something like that. And he asked me if I'd write a chapter on blockchain and climate change and the poor. And I thought, I actually don't know anything about that, but I would love to take up that challenge and help myself understand how blockchain is relevant to climate action for the poor. So that was actually my first kind of connection between blockchain and the climate agenda. Um, and over the last several years, then I've become more involved in blockchain and tech for sustainability, um, blockchain on the issue of carbon credits. And, and I'm very happy to share with you that I've just finished 
uh, writing a professional course for the Sustainability Institute on blockchain and climate action. So watch this space that's coming to a venue near you soon. So lovely to be here with you all and looking forward to hearing from Josh and Aaron. Yeah, thanks, Jane, for that introduction. Um, I want to circle back to Aaron. So Erin, can you set the stage in terms of how many countries are represented there? What's the big story so far that's coming out? From my perspective, I am meeting people from most countries. <laughs> so it's, it's really nice um, just having a beautiful time connecting with real change makers all over the place. It gives me hope, it revives my energy um, because we get very siloed and maybe sometimes we think, how are we gonna solve this issue? But when you get together with a group of people like this, you really feel like, yeah, we, we can do something. We do have to do it now. <laughs> we, we don't have a lot of time, um, but I think with the people who are around here in these hallways, we can actually make a difference. Um, and I, I would say, um, I, I like what I'm seeing from the Egyptian government. Um, from I, I know there's some bad things in the press, but in my day-to-day -day interactions, I'm meeting some very um, significant players who, who really want to make a difference and, and they look like they're ready to do some things. Right. Uh, have you had any interactions with the UAE delegation? Have they been at the forefront of conversations? I haven't seen that delegation, no. All right. But I do know that UAE is participating in a big way, especially because oh, yeah. year they are hosting the summit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's no yeah. surprise. I, I mean, even yeah. before before the conference, like that, that's been out there for sure. So um, I agree with that. And of, and of course, the also the, the fact that, you know, everyone is buzzing about the uh, next year's COP already, uh, the next COP that will be taking place in the UAE. So uh, there's a lot of excitement that that will be a COP that will be able to report actual progress as opposed to uh, constantly coming, we're, we're currently as, a, as humanity, we're way behind where we need to be, uh, you know, and so, uh, you know, when we talk about the carbon credits market as, as an example, I mean, maybe 200 million or so carbon credits are, are sold uh, on the markets, $2 billion market-ish. Um, and you'd be talking about gigatons of carbon. So most of the efforts that are happening right now are not enough, uh, don't scale. And uh, we need to understand that and credits generally uh, to date in the current model of, of centralization and of um, you know really two main authorities that have to give the the rubber stamp for your carbon credits. Uh, it's usually a fossil, usually a fossil fuel uh, based uh, rubber stamp. Unfortunately, about sixty percent of carbon credits on the market today are from fossil fuel based projects, and we're not going in the right direction. We have more and more carbon dioxide entering the atmosphere, and we are not pulling that up. And so that's the big. That's one big area of conversation that's happening here and lots of the delegations uh, uh, we're hearing from, especially from the Global South are, uh, you know, raising very serious alarms about the impacts that they're feeling right now. This is not a future problem. We're in the middle of it and we need very serious, we don't need to be playing games. We need to be really doing serious work to, um, you know, to make this happen and how do we activate billions of us as opposed to just a few thousand of us to um, actually engage in this dialogue and uh, and I hope you know that's that's where blockchain and other technologies enabling technologies can can step in yeah Josh uh, I I gathered that you were on a panel yesterday right so can you share some 
takeaways on the uh, discussions that you had yesterday? Yeah, so the conversation that I had yesterday, I have to say, was one of the cooler uh, panels that I've been on until this one, of course. But um, uh, but it was really interesting to be talking about the framework of climate and how it affects the livelihoods of uh, families specifically, and how families are impacted by climate change. Uh, so normally, a lot of times when we get into climate change conversations, we start getting into deep science and uh, you know uh, accounting mechanisms and all kinds of other things like that. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that there's real people uh, that are living in uh, communities that are deeply impacted, that are losing access to food. We have an entire country in Pakistan that's underwater uh, with millions of climate refugees now uh, displaced as a result. Uh, we have hurricanes hitting in the United States that are of size and ferocity that we've not seen before. Uh, we have uh, many crop failure happening around the planet. So there are very, those are not just abstract things. Those actually affect people's act, uh, livelihood and well welfare. And so, uh, you know, we are now seeing, um, and, and we'll talk about positive solutions, I, I promise. This isn't just about all the negative, but, you know, we're literally seeing children uh, and mothers who are dying because of, um, you know, decisions that have to be made around uh, where and how to deploy even ever limited resources uh, when you don't have access to food or don't have access to medicine or you have entire displaced populations uh, in refugees, climate refugees. Um, and, and this is just a taste of what could come if we do not slow things down and take action. And uh, that's the thing that we heard on the panel yesterday. We had two different uh, minister, uh, parliament members from Egypt that were on that panel. Uh, and a bunch of other academics and scientists and uh, special scientists that were that talking about um, yeah, could not be done yeah. going forward. Josh, I also read that. Uh, yeah, I also read that Europe is experiencing the hottest summer in the last five hundred years. So that's obviously of concern. A third of Pakistan was flooded. Cuba had blackouts, hurricanes in U.S. I mean, it's yep. uh, one after the other. So. Yeah, thanks for that uh, update, Josh. I'm going to circle back to Jane. Uh, Jane, our topic today is climate solutions in Web3. Uh, you know uh, both aspects of it, right? Both these spectrums. You are a Web3 person and you are a climate activist in many ways. Uh, how do you tie in these two ends? Uh, what is your analysis of where the solutions lie? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I'll just kind of talk you through the areas where I think that there's the potential to be able to harness blockchain and Web3 in climate action. So the first one is around green digital asset solutions. So these are carbon markets, green blockchains, green tokens, um, and green crypto. There's a, there's a whole... Uh, conversation to be had around that. The second one is around smart grid management. Uh, so we're looking at renewable energy off grid and allowing peer to peer trading of energies. The third one's around NFTs and gamification. So both the, the NFTs in terms of use, for example, for the tokenization of carbon credits, but also um, NFTs as art to raise money for climate and NFTs being used in gamification to incentivize people to take actions that will help us get to net zero. 
Um, another one that, which I think is really important using the affordances of blockchain and Web3 around verification, measurement and reporting, because one of the areas, and I'm sure Josh and Aaron will talk about that, it's, uh, it's very opaque. Um, and there's been a lot of fudging, if I could say, in the measurement, whether it's around um, carbon and carbon offsets or whether it's around the movement of climate finance. And so if you uh, deploy Web3 blockchain with AI, IoT and large scale databases, um, there's a lot that can be done both in terms of um, looking at the movement of the finance, the proper measurement of the carbon offsets for the tokenization of carbon, but also looking at um, action for desertification and deforestation and predicting weather events and trends that are problematic to people. And then finally, um, looking at how to use decentralized autonomous organizations that are made possible through blockchain and Web3 to connect new digital economies, which unite and economically align people around climate action. So um, there's a, at least one DAO for climate action being developed and uh, Miro Polsner is there at uh, COP. So please go and find him and talk to him about that. But they're the things that, that I see um, Web3 and blockchain can be deployed for. And in all of these, there are examples of people and places where this is already happening. Um, this is not academic, this is real. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Aaron, circling back to you, this is not uh, academic, this is real. Uh, what needs to happen now for it to make a difference for our future? What, what in your opinion, uh, we as individuals need to do to make things better for future generations? Well, um, I, I think what's on the front burner is, is starting with the carbon crisis, of course, and that's why we're here. But, um, you know, if you're going to purchase carbon credits, make sure you do your homework and look at what is really there. Um, this is due diligence. Um, and, and what we need to see coming from blockchain um, is carbon credits that are created on chain. That's really the answer. Um, carbon credits that are tokenized yet not created on chain don't help us. And, you know, it, on, on that level, there's due diligence, but, um, you know, we, we need the, the, the bigger impact investors, um, governments, corporations to, to really come into the real carbon credits. So um, I would love for Josh to talk more about Reseed and the, and the carbon credits that um, it produces um, because he has a long-term expertise in traditional carbon. Yeah, Josh, we need a masterclass from you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, the bottom line, right, uh, just starting with the basics, just if anybody needs it, there's way too much carbon dioxide, uh, that's pollution that we put in here, it can be drawn down. Um, and that's called legacy carbon, the carbon that, that carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere already. Uh, we basically are also right now, unfortunately, pumping way too much carbon every single day out, carbon dioxide out into the atmosphere. And so uh, it's just the current amount that we have and, and this happening at a too great a rate as well. So combine the two together and we have a stacking effect basically that is causing disruption in our atmosphere. Um, and 
does things, uh, pretty horrific things like uh, raise the temperature of oceans, um, you know, melt uh, ice caps, uh, literally affects the spinning of the earth and uh, causes pretty catastrophic disaster. Um, what we need to do um, is to take very seriously um, as a society that this is not theoretical, this is not a future state. And uh, so what we need to be doing is very transparently and clearly documenting exactly how uh, we are pulling carbon from the atmosphere and permanently or semi-permanently storing it in the ground. And basically, uh, we believe the best way to do that, we need all options on the table, but one of the most effective ways to do that is by harnessing nature's own process for doing this, which is called photosynthesis, uh, that basically takes carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, uh, plants turn it into oxygen, and then store it as carbon in uh, the trees or, or plant material or the soil uh, in the ground. And basically, if you have the ability to measure that process, which it turns out we do, um, then you could actually have nature-based solutions to uh, the climate crisis. And um, the, there are a lot of different approaches to this. Most people, when they're talking about nature-based uh, carbon solutions, are talking about planting trees. Um, that is can be a good thing to do. There's, uh, but frequently in our over-exuberance, when people talk about planting a billion trees or you know uh, getting to serious volume and not really thinking about where they're placed, for example, um, you tend to have monoculture forests that are created in uh, that are basically sterile forests that do not actually uh, draw down as much carbon as you'd expect. Um, and frequently, uh, right now, it looks about 80% of reforestation projects uh, that investment is behind um, are happening. You know, those are large scale projects uh, displacing local communities of people. And so, uh, you know, you have a, this problem of you don't want the solution to wipe out uh, populations of people. That doesn't make any sense. So we do have, though, our uh, there's 500 million small farms and about two million, uh, two billion uh, farm uh, family members uh, that are participating in farming, smallholder farming in the global south alone that live at or below the poverty level. And as I mentioned earlier, none of them are participating actively in the carbon economy yet uh, because uh, the there are no certification standards that actually um, provide the correct incentives. Uh, they create lots of hoops that they have to jump through, uh, expense that they have to uh, take on, um, and it's usually not worth it uh, for, for folks to do. So small-scale farming um, is where there are gigatons of unmeasured, untapped uh, potential and existence of storage and potential for drawdown to take place. It's one of the most exciting areas of the market to be involved in, and we exceed you know, we like to talk about what we're selling or whatever, but let's not even worry about that. Let's talk about specifically, we have a standard that we've created. It's an open standard. It's public. Uh, we have a protocol that we've developed that includes a, a digital MRV tied to local farmer information gathering that happens through an app. Everything is written natively to blockchain, and you don't have to be received to do it. You could actually, uh, it's an open protocol, so we want others to participate in it. We want others to make it better. And the point is, out the other side, uh, we are able to verify uh, carbon stored at a three meter resolution, three meter square resolution um, in uh, really any part of the planet. And that gets us the carbon that's in soil and also in vegetation. We're doing this right now actively in Brazil. That's our, that's our pilot project this year. We have 8,700 farmers that are using this protocol successfully. We have 2 million metric tons of carbon. So million with an M, just to be clear. Uh, from those 8,700 farmers, 
Um, and those uh, carbon credits, uh, every bit of information about them is in blockchain, public blockchain and available and easy to see when you buy those carbon credits. You literally can see the field where your carbon came from um, or fields if you're buying a lot of it, we hope. And uh, basically those farmers participate actively. Uh, there are business partners in this. So part of our protocol and part of our standard is that farmers have to be paid 50% of the price of carbon credit right off the top for the first sale. If you hold carbon and don't decide not to retire it uh, and sell it again, they make 10% of those ongoing transactions in, per in perpetuity. So as speculation takes place on the price of carbon, which is a very smart place to be thinking about speculating at this point in terms of um, uh, the rising price of carbon, uh, because it's one of the only commodities on the planet that is uh, constantly going almost straight up in terms of price because of the lack of clear um, sourcing. Uh, basically. Uh, farmers are able to participate in that and benefit from it. So we are doubling the household income of the farmers in Brazil that we're working with right now. Um, the price of carbon, our price of carbon as part of our standard is the same, no matter where that carbon comes from. So this is not a project postage stamp project by project uh, kind of approach, which is what the rest of the industry does. We have one standard. It's all written in blockchain. The project developed for those that are carbon developers and understand what I'm saying, the project development document is in blockchain. And so therefore it's public, it's open and easily accessible uh, for others to participate in. That's the future that we think we need to have. And that's how we get to scale uh, and try to address this, this challenge. Sorry, I was on mute. Uh, thanks, Josh. Um, uh, I'm very glad that we're having these conversations because uh, end of the day, it's about educating people uh, with all the jargon that's associated, you know, in, in this industry and breaking it down uh, for everybody to understand, uh, you know, uh, uh, the crisis uh, situation that we are in. Uh, so, Jane, uh, talking about educating people on why we need to act now, rather than, I guess, take a rain check, uh, how do you see this panning out? What do we need to do uh, in our communities to get more people involved? That's yeah. yeah, thank you. Just, be, just before we talk about education, and I'm not trying to take the chair away from you, Josh, one of the issues that, that I think it'd be useful for you to maybe comment on is around the, um, the voluntary and the compliance carbon markets and how your pricing mechanism kind of compares with other prices on the voluntary markets, because I think that's one of the, there's a kind of market failure going on in the voluntary markets, and I'd really be interested in you commenting on Absolutely. that? Absolutely. So there is, uh, there's an incredible, incredible uh, range of prices. Uh, you cannot yet call uh, carbon a commodity of any sort uh, because of the fact that you can buy a carbon credit and voluntary markets for as low as a dollar, sometimes 50 cents uh, per ton, um, which, uh, and then you can buy a carbon credit uh, as high as uh, $1,200 to $2,400 uh, from mechanical carbon uh, capture sources. Um, and so basically the lack of flight price stability and the lack of uh, consistency in pricing, uh, a ton of carbon is a ton of carbon. And basically the reason why those prices are so variable is because the centralization of the process of certifying carbon 
uh, has so many different hoops and middlemen and all kinds of, and I will say middlemen, sorry, but it's true. Uh, basically they're, uh, uh, you know, in different schemes uh, and different cost structures involved and uh, paying, you know, Vera alone, which is one of the large centralized uh, certifiers has 175 different protocols and standards that you can possibly follow. And if you pay them enough money, they'll be more than happy to just add another one for you. Um, so that type of rubber stamping um, and that type of, um, you know, as long as you pay enough to play uh, is just not useful uh, in the marketplace. And Jane causes uh, the price variability that you see. Um, there's also a lot of other factors involved, especially if you're buying carbon below $20 a ton, it is very likely it is going to embarrass you later, guaranteed. It's coming from a source that uh, is either disreputable, it's coming from a source that uh, involves exploitation of people, um, or it involves uh, fossil fuels involved in production of those carbon credits, which basically negates the entire purpose of it anyway. And last one, which is the worst, is that... Um, it's basically a fraudulent uh, carbon credit. So that means it's already been retired and being sold again. And uh, that's something that most of the, uh, I, I feel like the first generation of um, uh, registries and marketplaces on blockchain uh, that were uh, taking uh, uh, legacy carbon credits and trying to you know, smush the square peg through a round hole of blockchain um, concept, get it onto chain uh, were, basically run by a bunch of kids that didn't know what the hell they were doing. And um, that's fine. It's not fine, but that's what you might expect in an emerging technology market. Um, it's what always happens at the beginning of all these things. I was at the beginning of the web. I was at the beginning of uh, e-commerce and, you know, all the same behaviors took place. Um, but right now, those behave we need adults to step in uh, who understand business, who understand how to actually um, accept and welcome regulation a little bit uh, so that we can actually have a level playing field and understand what the rules are in which to operate um, and not um, necessarily base our business models on, uh, you know, utopian future libertarian um, models that don't work. Sorry, that was a dig at, in general at the, at the marketplace, but just an opinion. <laughs> yeah, no, look, thank, thanks for that answer. And Sherrod, I hope you don't mind, but you know, you were asking about, you know, what it's going to take to scale some of this stuff. And I think that Josh really helped us understand through that kind of educative approach that we we can't, we need to have carbon markets that work. We need to have verification of carbon credits that's actually accurate and you know what it is you're buying. Um, so there's a, there's a number of things that are, are going to be needed and business models that actually make commercial sense in order to scale. But you know, back to your question, which you asked me, which is around education. So people need to understand that because at the moment, every blockchain conference I go to, someone's tokenizing something and calling it a carbon credit. And I don't know if they've got any idea what they're doing or how they're going to sell it or how they're going to reward people, but it's very popular at the moment. So I think there's some real basic information that needs to get out there on what is this? How do you do it? How do people get rewarded? Because to your point about the farmers, we need to get some of this benefit moving down to the people who are most impacted and displaced um, by the climate crisis. And that's really critical. And blockchain gives you the tools to be able to do that. So I think that's critically important. But on the how do you mobilize people? And I guess the answer is, first of all, opportunities like COP 
are great because, you know, you've got the potential to mobilise global influences, governments and all sorts of people and push them to move the needle a little bit along. But you also need to create education for, you know, all of the more than half the world's population who are living in cities and who are creating enormous carbon footprints about what that is, what it means, what they can do to deal with it. Um, and we need to bring out, you know, all of the tools we've got, both social, economic and technological tools to be able to do something about that. Um, and education is going to be the key at every level, but it's not, it's got to be education that people want to listen to. So if you're going for Gen Alpha, you better be putting it on TikTok. They're not going to be listening to some big speech from a global leader. They're going to be watching some kid doing a dance about climate change. So like thinking about who are we trying to inform and what is the call to action? What do we want them to do? Because, you know, we can sit and watch as much as we like about the Amazon rainforest, but what can I do about that? I mean, that's why I kind of love the Dow for climate action, because if that were done properly, that would allow me to think about how I could contribute to doing something about the Amazon. But, you know, I just think we need um, a very concerted global collaborative action to be able to... Um, educate people in the way that they consume information that will help them do something that takes action. Um, so I'll, I'll make my last plug again for my blockchain for climate action course that I've just done because it's it's just a contribution because usually when I talk to people about this and I'm sure Josh and Aaron have the same experience, they go, oh, I had no idea that you could do that. And so I think there's a we need to help people understand that you can do a lot of things and this is how you can do it and here's how they can fit into solving the problem. Right. Uh, thanks, Jane. Uh, Josh, there's a question for you in the Q&A tab. Uh, are you able to pick it up or do you want me to read it out for you? I'm looking at it now. Um, so, for... Uh, uh, what action? Okay, so given that uh, agriculture segment is minuscule uh, in the carbon markets uh, right now, carbon credit markets, um, the action plan, quite frankly, uh, is uh, one that needs to um, meet the scale of the um, of the market, right? That we're talking about in terms of agriculture. Um, it turns out smallholder farmers are actually the ones at the front lines of preventing additional climate loss. And the reason, uh, 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 the reason why 80% of all deforestation on the planet is taking place as a result of industrial scale agriculture overtaking smallholder land. The reason why that's actually a problem is that industrial scale agriculture is the stuff that we might all think of, uh, you know, when we watch either some of us may live in areas of uh, large scale agriculture, or for those of us that are city dwellers, uh, you know, think of just long rows of corn that go on for miles and miles and miles at a time. Um, that's industrial scale agriculture. Um, and so basically uh, you have one monoculture crop uh, that everything in that uh, ecosystem is optimized around. Uh, the, eco the natural ecosystem is, is uh, diminished as much as possible. Uh, with uh, weed control and with uh, all kinds of other uh, fossil fuel, usually based uh, treatments. And basically with smallholder farmers, you have incredible diversity. Uh, and for those of us that 
have spent a lot of time in farming communities where there are small farmers, uh, you know they grow lots of different things um, and they have a mix of trees usually and, and fields and depending on where you are in the world. But the point is that it's a lush, verdant, green, mixed use um, in terms of types of vegetation environment. That type of agriculture uh, is we are losing about 10% of the surface volume of the earth of, that, of those types of farmers every year right now. Uh, this is a very serious crisis. And as we do, we're accelerating climate change as a result of doing that. So I believe uh, for Abhijit, sorry, I apologize, I'm misspelling, I'm misspeaking. Yeah. Yep, somebody's name, I apologize. <laughs> but uh, basically, uh, if we are to really want to get at this in the right way, we have to do things that help prevent the loss of small farming. That's why the economic incentivization that we've come up with around a carbon protection credit um, that is uh, paying farmers within six months of them signing up in, into our system, uh, starting to pay uh, them for the carbon protection work that they have been doing. And then in that next year, verifying additional uh, carbon storage plus any net new carbon, which we issue as a carbon uh, removal credit. Um, so basically, and the carbon removal credits, getting back to Jane's point of pricing, um, the carbon protection credits are $20 a ton and the carbon uh, removal credits are $40 a ton. And $40 a ton is the, for carbon sequestration, is the, uh, uh, the, the price point at which uh, IPCC and the UN and a whole bunch of other agencies have all said uh, will cause corporate behavior around carbon credits uh, uh, to adjust to also do pollution prevention, which is what we need to have happen. We need both things to happen at the same time. And so um, that to us is the model for how to scale this if you're talking about targeting and working with small scale farmers specifically uh, to protect uh, their livelihoods and their land. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Uh, Abhijit, I think your question has been answered by Josh. Uh, just a note for our audience, if you have any other questions for our panelists, uh, please post them in the chat window. And I'm going to come to Erin uh, for your closing remarks in terms of what are your expectations for the remaining part of uh, COP27? What is your dream wish list? What do you want to see emerge from this conference? Um, my, my wish is that um, the amazing days that I'm having uh, witnessing changemakers come together and, and work on innovation and how to do business and to, to move forward to, to make this impact. I, I want to see that for the rest of my time here, and I don't doubt that will happen. Um, the other thing is that I, you know, the, the biggest thing is that I really want to see these uh, countries lead all around the world and do something now. Like they have to. We, we don't have time to wait anymore. So that is my greatest dream come true. Great. Um, yeah, so I'm going to ask the same question to Josh. Uh, what is your expectation from this summit before you uh, head back to US? Um, I think what's most exciting about what's happening here is not necessarily what we're going to see out of official uh, policies that come out of this COP27, but actually, uh, you know, if, as I look around the room where I am right now, uh, we're in the innovation zone. Um, what we're seeing is public and private partnerships uh, of uh, corporations. Uh, smaller companies uh, that are doing emerging technology and interesting issues. 
um, working together with social sector um, and NGO communities to um, partner and bring together the dialogue of how do we all bundle together what we're doing um, so that we are not just focused on just carbon removal or just um, helping families uh, thrive, but actually how do we do that all together? And so uh, I feel like there's a lot of really, really good uh, partnerships that are starting to emerge out of here. Um, we are definitely uh, in conversations on a bunch of those as well uh, and hope to have some announcements after COP about uh, some very significant, significant elements uh, for this. But I think it's time uh, that, uh, and what I would like to see, and part of what we're trying to encourage here as, as my role on in, in, the, uh, in these negotiations is to actually advocate for the fact that the global South holds most of the solutions uh, for the absorption um, and storage of carbon. We need the global North to step forward and reduce emissions and compensate the global South and come up with the business models for the global South to be compensated for the ecosystem services that, uh, you know, when you look at Africa and much of, you know, Southeast, uh, most of Asia um, and look at uh, South America, we have massive, massive tracks of um, uh, carbon that can be uh, improved upon, that can be uh, measured and, and verified. And we need to make sure that we have the business models in place uh, like what we think we're doing at Reseed, and there's many others out there as well. Uh, and we need everybody to be doing it. So uh, there's no one answer here. Uh, but basically, uh, we need to see business models that make sense that that help that flow of capital uh, occur. So uh, that's what I'm I'm hopeful for. Yeah, super. Erin, are you able to move your camera around to just show us a bit of the place you are in? Yeah, I'm actually happy to do a turnaround and um, show you that the the tribe of uh, Neom is here. We see a bunch of people um, and leaders from Neom, which is very exciting to see um, Saudi Arabia attending. Saudi Arabia actually has a pavilion here for climate uh, change, which is exciting to see that they're jumping into impact in a big way. Yeah, if you look around the room, there are all um, types of people and meeting rooms, and this is actually pretty quiet right now, um, but yeah. It's nice. <laughs> I well, hope that, that helps. <laughs> that, yeah, that gives a flavor of where you are. We are definitely missing this out, but uh, perhaps next year in UAE, I believe it will be at the Expo Center sometime in early November. So definitely a place I think all of us will meet uh, in real life. So looking forward to that one. Uh, Jane, your closing remarks before we sign off today. You made the comment about COP coming to UAE. So I'm hoping Aaron and Josh and all my other friends and colleagues who are at COP bring us those great new ideas and let us use those to inspire greater action and greater application around the issue of tech for sustainability here in the UAE. So that when it's launching, being fabulous in uh at the expo site, we've actually really got some great solutions and business models. We understand how to mobilize and deploy the capital. We've got the startups who are inventing the things that are going to be enable us, enable us to be able to take better, faster climate action. So um, I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully taking the baton for you and going to find all of my friends and colleagues here in the UAE and seeing if we can't 
really mobilise here for uh, a lot of action leading up to uh, COP next year. And I was just at the Youth Hub this week and they were, they were talking about mobilising the youth with some real solutions to take to COP next year. So I think it should be all about solutions, business models that work, mobilising capital and getting global action. Yeah, thanks, Jane, for that uh, note of optimism and talking about youth. Our next webinar is going to be on 15th December, exactly one month from now. And guess what we are talking about? Gen Z and the metaverse. So we are going to have five 20-year-olds on the panel, and they will walk us through what is in store for us uh, with all the new technologies. So I want to thank all our panelists, Aaron, Josh, Jane, for your valuable inputs. And Josh, uh, thanks for that masterclass. I'm a lot wiser. And I guess so are our audience members. Uh, I want to thank all the meta shapers who are in the room. You know who you are. I value your presence. Thank you for being here. Thank you for all the other audience members for showing up. And on a housekeeping note, tomorrow, same time, a recording of this webinar, along with the podcast, will be available on onlywebinars.com. Thank you for investing your 60 minutes with us. Stay safe, be good, and see you on the other side. Thank you, my panel. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you, everyone. Great to Take see care, you. Everyone. Bye. Thanks for everyone Bye. for listening. Bye.